Well, a very warm welcome to Krista Rittenhouse and Chris Wenden, who uh, come to us as directors from ADVOS. And uh, before you begin, let me just pray with you. Dear God, we breathe in again your Holy Spirit as a congregation. We need your help to spark our imaginations with the restoration that you intend. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hello again. <laughs> Um, in case you didn't catch it during the children's time, my name is Krista. I'm the Director of Restorative Practices at ADVOS. And ADVOS is an organization that has several tenets to it, but just for a frame of reference as we talk, kind of where we're coming from, um, some of the core pieces that we do. We do mediation, helping people who are in mid-conflict. We do victim-offender conferencing or restorative conferencing. Um, surrounding when crime has happened, involving a conversation, if it's, if it's appropriate and people choose to, um, conversation between the person who caused that harm and the person who was harmed. Um, and then we do conflict training for families as well as for people in organizations and folks who are going through training to become volunteers to do these conversations with people in our community. So that's kind of where we're coming from and, and what we do on a weekly basis. Um, but I want to start, we're going to paint the story of a conversation that I was a part of, um, and then Chris will share a bit more about the scripture that was just read, and then I'll tell you the end of the story at the end. Don't worry, you're not going to be left hanging totally. Uh, but I just want to tell you about a few of the characters that, are, that I met with before inviting them to a conversation together. Their sole piece of unifying information that you need to know is that a moped was stolen and returned in not working condition. By returned, I mean it was taken by the police and given back to them in not working condition. Okay, so we have this moped. Um, the, the young man who stole it, we're gonna call him Ben for the sake of this story. He had stolen lots of things in the past, to be fair. He had been referred to our organization a number of times already. Okay, so he's, he's got some, some patterns that are indicators of, of some struggles that he has in his own life. Um, he's an adopted child and also currently when I spoke to him he was living in a residential youth program so out of his home and actually in another county. Um, raise of hands, how many of you have noticed that when you're in a different environment or different people that makes a difference with how you can behave? I would think that a lot of hands would go up for that, right? Like we need support by our community to be our best selves. And that's true for everyone, so I also want to paint that here. Um, so, so Ben is in a residential program working through some of his own stuff. And he's like, I don't love the idea of talking to the moped owner, but I'm willing to do it. He knows he messed up with that choice. Uh, the moped owner, her name is going to be Maria. And she is living with two terminal illnesses and doesn't, honestly doesn't know how much time she has left on earth in this capacity and she got a moped for her son because he doesn't have a driver's license yet and uh, this moped was street legal without a driver's license so when she couldn't get out of bed in the morning he could still get himself to work that's the moped that was stolen and that's a hard story to hear um, and we also have Ben's grandparents who 
are kind of like, we love Ben. He's a wonderful kid, and also I don't know if he's going to be able to stay out of trouble because this is a pattern in his life, and you're wel we welcome your support, but also like we feel like we've reached the end of our rope with being able to know what to offer him in, in moving forward. So those characters come together for a joint conversation that I'm going to tell you about after you hear from Chris. Thank you so much, and Pastor Todd, thank you for the invitation uh, to come here. And before we get started, I'd like to thank um, this church body for choosing to roll up their sleeves and get messy in the work of, of restorative practices in our community. And thank you for your, your financial support, and also I look around and see a number of our board members and volunteers, which makes it even more nerve-wracking to preach this sermon well. Um, a little bit about me, I have one wife and four children. Um, I was so nervous once that I actually got that number mixed up and said I have four wives and one child um, and got some weird looks from around the table. Um, I think you might have heard that passage from 2 Corinthians 2 and might have thought that's not your traditional uh, Advent uh, Bible verse to hear uh, in a couple weeks out from Christmas. And the reason why I picked that this morning is because I think that from my perspective, when we are restored in relationship with, with God, we are restored to be restorers. We hear, the, we hear the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Um, we like to add on to that, that healed people, heal people. And so I think in, in, in our framework and the way that we come to, to our faith journey is that we are restored to be restorers. Uh, there is such rich good news in how our relationship becomes with, with Christ that I wanted to unpack just a little bit of 2 Corinthians 2, and I'm aware that we could spend 40 minutes on this, but uh, I got shrunk down to a little less than that. Um, I heard the phrase growing up that there is nothing surer than death and taxes. Um, and I think that, that as I reflect on that in our work, we would probably add to that bumper sticker that there's nothing surer than death, taxes, and conflict. Um, because conflict is a norm, right? You are going to face conflict even if you are in a bubble and just driving to work. You know, you have that wonderful experience with road rage, or maybe you don't. Um, and as we talk about restoration this morning, I love the picture of the chair. Um, because in order for restoration to occur, something has to be restored. There has to be something that was broken in order for it to be restored, or maybe something that needs fixed to be restored. I appreciated the story from Jessica, my father-in-law is like that, and I don't understand how the brains of those people work. They walk in and they say, I've got to change this, this, and this, and this. So we wanted to unpack 2 Corinthians 2, because there's a beautiful context in, in this passage about something that happens in the context of community that leads to restoration, and I think it gives us a really good biblical framework of how we as people of faith are to be restorers in that journey. And so we're kind of poking our heads in on a church business meeting, if you like, here in, in 2 Corinthians. And, and basically it starts off with, with this reference to such a one who has been, um, been punished uh, by the church congregation. And now I will say we're going to talk about a few things here um, that I'm going to try and keep PG because I noticed there are a few kids around here. So I'm, I'm going to kind of give you some context of this passage, but do it as, a, as, a, as appropriate as a parent who, who's figuring out how to make sure this is uh, child appropriate. So it's widely held that what Paul is referencing in this passage is a member of the church in Corinth who was involved in an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. Um, if you want to unpack that later with me, we can talk more about that. But essentially what had happened was that Paul had come to this church, found this behavior going on, and, and essentially told the church that this man should be expelled from the church because he was, simply put, he was unrepentant and didn't believe he did anything wrong. Um, 
And what's great about this story is that during the time of the man's separation, the Holy Spirit had worked in his heart and convicted him of his sin and convicted him that his, his sin in this area of, of his physical relationship and especially his, his relationship was wrong and he had turned his life around and he had repented from what he did. And so that brings us to, to where we are today. And so Paul says in this passage that for such a one, the punishment that he has experienced is enough. And so that brings us to what are we supposed to do in situations where an individual who has been truly sorrowful for what they have done um, and they have paid whatever the appropriate consequence is, and this is a great passage for us as parents, as grandparents, as, as caregivers as well, so what do we do? Well, firstly, we hear, hear that the individual had shown true sorrow and repentance, and I'm, I'm loving this story because you're going to hear a little bit about what that looks like in practice, but Paul instructs us with another thing. He says, secondly, we're called to forgive the person. Paul says in verse 7, you should rather turn to forgive them. And it's not just a simple act of forgiving, because sometimes forgiving can be something that is not accompanied with an action. Um, but forgiveness is hard. And I think that's why Paul tacks on the second part of that sentence. And he says, rather, you should turn to forgive and comfort him. Now, when I read that, I was not expecting that piece to come in, right? Because as you read the passage, the man has been in offense to the church body. And yet Paul says... It's your responsibility to comfort the man from the experience that he's gone through. If that doesn't hit you as a rather strange example of radical biblical love, I, I don't know what is. Because sometimes in our forgiveness we could say, I forgive you, but you paid the price for what you did. Okay. But Paul's saying, forgive him and then deal with the fact that maybe he's feeling a little rough. Maybe there's a need that this person has for a hug. A, glad to see you back. We're really glad you've been here. And, and it is radical. It is deeply hard. And we see this in our work all the time. I don't want to spoil the story. I had a note here, but then I realized it will spoil the story if I tell you that, tell you that part. But forgive and comfort. Right? Forgive and comfort. Just because they've done their time doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have the need to be comforted. And what a tremendous example it is of, of biblical love. And so Paul adds a third piece here. Forgive them, comfort them, and then reaffirm your love for them. I think for those of us who are parents, we get that piece, right? We get that piece that when our child experiences the consequences for something they do wrong, we need to be very quick to say, I'm doing this because I love you, right? I'm doing this because I love you. And so Paul is saying in the work that, that if you go through this experience, forgive, comfort, and reaffirm your love for them. And I think that's really hard sometimes. Especially in a society where we like to put conditions on who should be restored, put conditions on what someone should do in order to be forgiven. Um, but Paul says you should forgive them, comfort them, and reaffirm them. And I think what's really interesting about this passage is that, as I, as I spent some time reflecting on this, biblical discipline is not always about paying for what has been done. But if you read the Bible in its entirety, you start to understand that biblical discipline, more often than not, is about refining the character of the person involved. Hebrews 12:11 makes this beautiful passage. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and a peace for those who have been trained by it. Right? Discipline is about training. It's about producing a character that is a righteousness, that is peaceful, and acts as a training tool. 
we read this passage in the Old Testament that says, spare the rod and spoil the child, and I think sometimes we're like, oh great, that's an excuse for smacking our children. If you go back and do a, a biblical study, the idea when, when shepherds were around and they had this rod, we picture it as a, you know, maybe a, a long piece of wood, but a shepherd's crook was a pole that had a curve on the end. And it wasn't about smacking or hurting a sheep, it was about bringing them back to the right way they should be. So it was a beautiful picture of saying that discipline is about training. And so I think it's a really interesting picture for us to say that, that this individual has gone through an experience where they have truly shown repentance, they have truly shown sorrow, and so we are called to forgive them, to comfort them, and reaffirm our love for them. And it's really, really just interesting that I love the way we sang that, that, that Christmas song, because there's, there's 300 plus years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And what I loved about hearing that song was experiencing that we had another three or four verses we could have done, but I don't know about you, but I just felt the lament as we just built up. And then when we finally got to hit that, hit that chorus, that's my way of saying stop talking, because my wife isn't here. Um, but as we hit that chorus, I don't know about you, but it was a chance just to take a breath and realize this morning was over. Like this sadness no longer exists anymore. And so it's a really interesting point here that, that Paul says there's two reasons why he's charging the people in Corinth to do this. Number one is because he doesn't want the individual to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Excessive sorrow. Right? When we have done something wrong, and I say we because I'm pretty sure most of us have done something wrong, like at least the Bible says we all have, um, guilt or feeling of regret can lead to sorrow. And it's often great to have someone in your corner that says that action doesn't define you as a person. But I want to just say there's one other really interesting part of this passage that, that I wanted to, before I, I land this plane and, and disappear, is what he says in verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says that Paul is commanding all of this to be done. Why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When Christians are in ongoing conflict with each other, the devil uses that as a tool to destroy. Right? An ununified body of Christ is an ineffective body of Christ. I'll say that again, an ununified body of Christ is an ineffective body of Christ. And so what a great time this Christmas season is for us to reflect on the fact that Jesus comes to restore us so that we may be restorers to other people. And the angel's message was that they were bringing was good news of great joy to all people, not just some people. Right? Restoration is for all people. Because God is ridiculously patient with me. You know, one of my favorite verses is what Paul quotes, of sin as I am the worst. And I don't say that lightly, but it's an interesting reflection, right? Because God's standard is what? God's standard is perfection, not mildly good. And so it's a beautiful passage that restoration is for all who truly, truly seek the name of Jesus. And so if you have not yet made the opportunity to be fully restored into a relationship with God, there's no better time than Christmas season to do that. And so I want to finish my time before I hand back to Krista with the, the final verse, actually, of the, the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, not the final, but one of the final ones. In, in uh, chapter 13, verse 11, this is Paul's charge to the people of Corinth. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, which is what we just did in that Christmas song. Rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. There's that comfort part. Encourage one another. Be of one mind 
and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And so this Christmas season, may you not just enjoy the restoration that came for you, but this Christmas season, may you be a restorer for somebody else who just might need to know that the baby in the manger is the same person who is the crucified Savior on the cross on Easter. So I'm going to hand over to Chris to finish this story because you've probably been listening to half of what I've saying to wonder how this story finishes. Um, but yes, thank you so much. And we're going to be here a little bit after between the Sunday school hour, but I want you to not miss the end of the story because it's a good story. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, so restoration, what does it look like? Uh, we heard what it was being called for in the church. How can it look in real life as well in our context for the characters of the story that I was interacting with? Um, we through conversations, invited everyone to a conversation together. We had the families of both in the room, plus a therapy dog, because this was an emotional time, and that felt helpful for folks. Um, so that's something we can offer. And Ben shared his story. This is how I got here. It was um, honest uh, and not overly emotional, and that's fine for a 15-year-old young man. Um, Maria shared her story, and she started with saying, Ben, I need you to know that I am angry at you. There is real emotion here. And, and she had space for that. I am angry at you, and I'm mad at what you did, and you need to know the reason I had that moped for my son is because he needed to get to work because I don't know how long I'm going to live. And, and she shared her story. Um, the parents, the grandparents who are the guardians also shared like, this is how we've been affected by all of this. And, and we want you to know, we collectively want you to know, Ben, that you matter to us and we're here not to tell you that like you're excluded from this family and this community, but you need to know the way that, that this moped theft has affected who we are and how we, how we are in the world. Um, Ben had repaired prepared an apology letter that he then started to hand over to Maria. And she said, I'd really like you to read it to me. He goes, no, I, I stutter when I read. I don't really want to do that. And she goes, well, my eyesight is not very good. Can you read it to me? And then she winks at me. I was like, this lady's a genius, first of all. <laughs> so he reads it and stutters a little bit, but reads this beautiful apology letter that he had done some reflection. Um, and, and it ended with, this whole story ended with an articulation of forgiveness and a hug that was about 15 seconds long between this young man and Maria. Um, and she, she asked permission before that. She said, as a fine, I said, anything else before we leave? We'd kind of gone through the whole conversation. She said, can I give you a hug? Um, and he, he said, yes. They embraced. Um, and, and then she also said something to the effect of, and if you ever do this again to someone, know that I'm not going to be happy. She said it in different language, but you know, it was said with like, uh, it was a confidence and a care of like, I know you can do better than this, and now you know that I know that you can do better than this, and that's going to matter because we now have a relationship and are not strangers on the street if we see each other. Um, yeah, and so as people were leaving, this Maria, who doesn't know how long she has left, she, as people were dispersing, just kind of turned to me and said, Krista, I feel better. <laughs> I feel better. That matters for how she finishes her time. Um, and it also, 
matters that Ben has the permission to move on and learn from this experience, knowing that he can maybe let go of a bit of that guilt. It doesn't mean that we don't keep processing that as we go forward, but he can maybe let go of a bit of that guilt, knowing that Maria has, has offered him the grace and um, understanding to say that we know you can do better. So it's really cool to see that happen for folks who live in Lancaster County and would love to talk with you more about ways that you can be involved or other stories that we have and also thank you for letting us be here. <laughs>